you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you have trouble finding Malachi, it's last book in the Old Testament. Or you can just go to Matthew and flip backwards. Do you remember what it was like to be newly in love? Every look felt like a firework. Every conversation was pregnant with focus and attention and emotion. When love is new, it feels like everything else is new too. You see things like you've never seen them before. The saturation and the color spectrum is through the roof. Everything feels alive, like it's humming with energy. And no problem seems too big to be conquered. The sting of life in this fallen world seems to be dulled by the ecstasy of this young love. But eventually the fever pitch begins to fade. After the wedding, the honeymoon, the excitement fades and fades and fades, and then there's just life. Then you wake up early in the morning and you get up and you go to work. You settle into the same six or seven, maybe 12 or 20, depending on how well your significant other can cook, meals for a dinner schedule. You realize that you've told most of your stories. The conversation tank kind of begins to run low. Now, instead of staying up and talking all night, you just watch a rerun of your favorite television show and go to bed. Life is pleasant in this stage, even if it's unexciting. But then the suffering comes. It always does come. Maybe your wife gets really sick. Maybe the husband loses the job. Maybe you have a miscarriage. On top of that, you begin to see in a very real way that your significant other is just like everyone else. They're not as special as you thought they were. They're a sinner. And they sin against you. Your proximity to them, the fact that you're with them when they wake up and you're with them when they come home and you're with them when you go to bed, it shows you just how sinful they really are. Now that this high of new love wears off, you can feel the sting of that sin like you never really felt it before. The thing that you used to think was cute now drives you up the wall. That little comment that used to just roll right off of your shoulder like water off of a duck's back, now it sits and settles and stings like acid. You used to feel like, because of your love, that you could conquer anything that life had to throw at you. But then you begin to wonder if maybe such a thought was a bit naive. After a big fight, you may even ask yourself what the point is. You may begin to wonder if it's really all worth it. Maybe you go out and you just don't feel like coming home. And you don't just see this in marriage relationships. You see this kind of phenomenon in any number of scenarios where people are prone to a big rush of initial enthusiasm, a big pop of excitement, and then 
everything begins to dwindle and fade. Things begin to get hard. You begin to wonder, what's the point? It could be a church plant or a church revitalization. Yeah, new pasture, new vision, new hope for the church. Everybody's all in, all hands on deck. Can you keep that sentiment alive for two years, three, five? Maybe it's a new diet. Maybe it's a new fitness routine. Maybe it's pursuing a college degree. You're finally going to do it. You're going to go back to school, and you are motivated. We're prone to start with a bang and then fizzle. And then when things get really hard, we ask ourselves, what's the point? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? Well, I think that's the phenomenon that you see in today's text that we're going to read together here in a minute. God's people have been backing God's land for well over a hundred years. You remember that they were in exile for 70 years, but then God in His gracious mercy brought His people back into the land and He called them to do all these big and exciting things. It's time to rebuild the temple. You know, reinstitute the law. Get the sacrifices going again. Get the wall rebuilt. One big project after another. It was all so big and new and exciting. At one point in the story, the people were so amped up, they were so on board with the mission that they were carrying a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. The mission felt impossible, but their God felt unstoppable. But then the enduring difficulty of the call began to wear on the people. Mission fatigue began to set in. As the Israelites encountered opposition and injustice, and as they had to deal with the consequences of their own sins, they felt the joy and the passion begin to drain from their collective conscience. The worship began to become rote and cold, even corrupted. The land didn't produce. The rain didn't fall. The opposition of the enemies endured for longer than they thought that it would. And so they begin to ask what we read today in the central question of the text is, they begin to ask this question, what is the profit of our keeping His charge? That is, serving the Lord. And if we mess up, what is the purpose of walking as in mourning before the Lord? Basically, they began to wonder, is it worth it? What are we doing this for? What are we going through this for? Well, let's read about it together. Malachi Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God 
and the one who does not serve him. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Amen. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to pay careful attention to your word because your word will bring us life. Amen. Today's text is really about two kinds of people. And I've got five points for you this morning. And each of these five points, I hope, will help you better understand these two kinds of people. But I also hope that it will help you to better understand yourself and where you stand in relation to the Lord. And finally, I hope it will help you better understand God himself. The five points are this. There are two kinds of people. Number one, two kinds of people. Number two, what the people do. Number three, how the people see God. Number four, how God sees the people. And number five, how God treats them. And if you didn't get all that, that's fine. I'll, I'll tell you as we go through them. Point number one, two kinds of people. Simply put, today's text is about God's elect and the reprobate. Let me explain what I mean. Here in Malachi, God is addressing all of his covenant people, the people of Israel, the people that God chose to be a people for himself. The old covenant people of Israel were always a mixture They were always a mixture of people who really trusted the Lord, believed in the Lord from the heart, and people who were just Jews outwardly. You see the same phenomenon in churches today, right? You walk into a church building, you assume, especially here in Decatur, Alabama, that some of the people are only there outwardly. But you also assume that some of them genuinely trust and believe the Lord. Well, the same thing was true of ancient Israel. As Paul would later say in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. And today's text shows us that among the people of Israel, there are those who fear the Lord and those who don't. Among God's chosen people, there are those who esteem the name of the Lord, and there are those who don't. There are those who serve Him like a faithful child and those who don't. The elect and the reprobate. Now the distinguishing mark between these two people is this. God's people listen to God's Word, and they respond appropriately. Not perfectly, not perfectly consistently, but they respond to God's Word appropriately. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of the sermon. In today's text, God comes to His people and He casts a rebuke. You're speaking harshly against me. And what you see is this this net of rebuke going out only gathers the fish of repentance amongst the elect of the people of Israel. We'll see that more in point number two, which we're at, by the way, point number two. And we're going to go through points one through four pretty quickly because point number five is really where we're going to hang out and spend most of our time. Point number two, what the people do. You see, you can most easily perceive the difference between these two kinds of people by looking at their actions. And one action specifically in this text, you can see the difference between these people by looking at their speech, contrasting the speech of these two different kinds of people. In verse 13, God says that the people are speaking harshly against him. Look, go back there. Verse 13. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it is vain to serve God. 
What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Now surely not all of Israel was speaking harshly against God, but enough of them were that God issued this rebuke to the entire nation. And like the father of a rebellious teenager, the Lord almost seems hurt by the way the people of Israel are speaking against Him. After all of the love and care and discipline that Yahweh has given His people, century after century after century, especially in the face of rebellion and complete disobedience, the people of God speak harshly against Him. They say things like, He doesn't care about us. He doesn't love us. He doesn't care about justice. He loves those unjust people more than He loves us. He loves the arrogant and the evildoer, but what about us? Today's text sounds very familiar to what we saw in chapter 2, a similar complaint, where the people of Israel are crying out and asking God where the justice is. But I think that today's text has a little bit of a different flavor to it. I think today's text has a little bit of a different tone. In chapter 2, it seemed like the people were crying out to God in confusion and despair. They were like Job. They were asking, where is justice, God? But in today's text, I sense more of a, the tone of a selfish child crying out in sinful frustration. What's the point of serving God if I don't get anything out of it? If those people are getting everything and I'm getting nothing, what's the point of this? And then if I mess up and I decide to walk in repentance and I still don't get anything out of it, what am I doing this for? Is this any way to speak to God? Is this any way to speak about God? In contrast to this speech, we see the speech of the remnant after the Lord rebukes His people. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, that's in contrast to those who didn't, they spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. So what you see here among this remnant, amongst these people who fear the Lord, who esteem His name, is that rather than speaking harshly against God, they speak to one another. Now the question is, what do they say? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Malachi doesn't tell us what they said. But that doesn't mean I don't think we can figure it out. You see, as we look at the text, we see that whatever they said, it caused God to look upon them favorably. In light of what they said, the Lord looked to them. He listened to them. He, he said He would spare them. He put their name in a book of remembrance or a scroll of remembrance. Now, what kind of language does God listen to? Well, all throughout the Bible you see that He listens and pays attention to sincere praise. He gives heed to repentance. He listens to words of humility he lends his ear to those who are poor in spirit and broken and see their great need of him. So it seems likely that they came together to repent. You see this in the book of Nehemiah. God's people come together and they repent corporately. This is very common. Isn't it striking then to read that they spoke to one another? 
if what they were doing was repenting and seeking reform in their, in their clan. Isn't it incredible that they came to speak to one another? I think what you see here is that repentance, true repentance among the people, amongst the people of God always has a vertical and a horizontal element. The Israelites aren't merely repenting to God in their private times, in the prayer closet. Rather, they come together to communicate their repentance with each other. Rather than coming together to collude against God and to speak harshly against Him, they come together to collude for faithfulness. They're plotting and scheming repentance. Instead of a group of political dissidents in a dingy room somewhere plotting the death of the monarch, they're coming together to speak of how they might be more faithful to the crown, especially in light of their past unfaithfulness. What would it look like if the church did the same thing? What would it look like if this church did the same thing? Well, friends, that's exactly what we do. That is what we're doing right now. Every Wednesday and every Sunday, we gather together to worship the Lord. But we also gather together to stir up one another, to love and to good works. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Listen carefully to the language of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us, God's people, consider, consider, let's, let's put our heads and our hearts together. Let's scheme and plot and plan and talk to one another. How to stir up one another to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be like the faithful remnant in today's text, the easiest way for us to do that, the God-ordained way for us to do that, is for us to do what, if you're a member of this church, you've already agreed to do. Show up. Come on Wednesday nights. Come on Sunday mornings. Be here in members' meetings where you will be loved, encouraged, challenged, rebuked, exhorted. Towards what? Towards faithfulness. In light of what? In light of the great coming day of judgment which we'll talk about later on in today's sermon. Don't show up so that we can work you to death with endless programs. Don't show up so that I can feel better about having more people in the pews on a Sunday morning. Don't show up so that you can get your emotional fix for the week. Show up so that you can scheme and plot and plan how to be more faithful to the Lord, how to walk more fully in repentance. This is the ministry that God has called you to. I would say to the visitors this morning, but I think we only have one visitor. I don't know if you're a member of a church somewhere, sister, but being a member of a church is a, is a tremendous gift from God. And it breaks my heart that just this Saturday when I was talking to some of our neighbors, I asked half of them if they were Christians, and most of them said yes, and then I asked them if they were members of a church somewhere, and most of them said no. How, how do they think they're going to make it to that great day? without the help of the church. I, I just don't understand it. I know I can't do it. In Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus taught us that what comes out of our mouths is an overflow of what lives in our hearts. Right? So we've just looked at what comes out of the mouths of the people of Israel. Well, now let's consider where those words came from. Point number three. 
how the people see God. The end of verse 16 shows us that there is a remnant within Israel that fears and esteems His name. What this means is that there is a population that does not fear His name. There is a population in Israel that does not esteem His name. And those who didn't esteem the name of the Lord failed to do so because they, I think, believed a very early iteration of what we would today call the prosperity gospel. This idea that you do what you're supposed to do and God gives you what you want. God is like your cosmic ATM. You put in your service and out comes the blessings. You put in your repentance, out comes the reward on a one-to-one basis. I think that's the heart of the complaint of the people of Israel today, as we've already seen from verse 14. The people don't get what they want from God initially, and so they despise Him. He brings a rebuke, they repent, they walk as in mourning before Him, and they still don't get what they want, and so they despise Him more. In contrast, the remnant, those who respond to the word of the Lord with with repentance, I think that they show that they have a deeper understanding of who God is. Rather than setting themselves up as judges over God, as people who are capable of judging His justice, they recognize that they aren't God. Instead of looking at the situation and cursing God because things haven't gone the way that they had hoped that they would go, they just accept that God is in control. Even if everything else feels out of control. I think the repentant remnant here in Malachi chapter 3, I think they channel the heart of Job. Do you remember Job after he lost his, well, his everything? His, his children, his livestock, his servants, his health, in all the most terrible ways. After losing everything in what appeared to him to be a great mistrial of justice, this is what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what about you? Will you bless the name of the Lord? Will you esteem His name? Even if things don't go as you had hoped? Even if it feels like the Lord is withholding His blessings? Will you continue to serve God even when you feel like you're not getting anything out of it in your marriage, with your children, on your job? I wrestle with this in the church. I think I'm being a faithful pastor. I'm trying my best to lead the people of this church as well as I can according to God's word. I'm trying to train up other pastors and elders and leaders for the sake of this church. I'm trying to lead us in evangelism and discipleship. And the church has grown some. But if I'm being honest, it's not anything that like I had hoped by now. And maybe that was foolish on my part. So what am I to do? Should I curse God? Should I begin to not esteem his name? Should I despise him because in my ministry he hasn't done for me what I thought he ought to do? No, I just have to remember that he is faithful. He is good. He is true. He's just. I know what it's like to read these verses 
and to see how these people are so angry because those who are evil are prospering. And I look at other churches that are preaching a false gospel and I see how many people darken their doors. I see how full their bank accounts are. And I want to cry out in the same way. But the Lord is in control. It's not my responsibility. It's not your responsibility to make things happen. It's just our responsibility to be faithful and then to trust that our good and perfect Savior will do what He pleases in the church. And what He pleases is certainly better than what I would will. So how do you see God? Is His name worthy of praise even if things don't go your way? Point number four, how God sees the people. I think we see here that God sees His people distinctly. That is, the Lord has seen His people together as a whole, but He's made a distinction even amongst His people as He looks at them. We already saw that in point one, but we're going to look at it a little bit more now. Look at verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and those who do not serve Him. God says that right now you can't see it. That's why you're crying out to me. That's why you're accusing me. You can't see this distinction that I see. But one day you will see. But right now I want you to know that I see the difference. I see the sheep and the goat. I see the wheat and the tares. I know who belongs to me. Which leads us to point number five. How God treats his people. How God sees excuse me, how God treats those people that he sees being obedient to him, that he knows belong to him. How does God treat his elect? That's really the question that we have here in this text, right? The people are wondering, God, why aren't you treating us the way that we think we should be treated? Well, I think we see six things. This is going to be six, bear with me, subpoints for point number five. Subpoint number one, God notices his people. You see this in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention. What do you think it takes to be noticed by God? Seven billion people in the world. What do you think it takes for you to be noticed by God? Do you think you have to be exceptionally righteous? Do you think you have to be like a child trying to earn their father's attention by excelling in school or extracurricular activities? Do you think you have to be amazing in order to draw God's gaze? Like an athlete who wants his coach to pay attention and give him an attaboy, do you think you have to excel in whatever field you're in? Do you think you have to reach a certain caliber of performance to be noticed by God? Well, the answer to that is no. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, in a world full of people who don't fear God, when we fear God, it's easily noticed by Him. In a world full of people that pays, excuse me, full of pride, a little bit of humility goes a long way in the sight of the Lord. It stands out. Your words of sincere praise, they pop and they stand out against the backdrop in a world full of blasphemy. The Lord, according to this text, takes notice of those who fear Him and esteem Him and walk in repentance. 
That's all it takes. Number two, he also hears them. He also hears them. Not only does the Lord notice those who fear him, but he listens to them. Verse 16 says that he heard them. Same question. Do you think that God hears you? I mean, is it like, is it like he's up there and there's seven billion phones ringing and, you know, maybe he'll answer yours? Seven billion voices rising up to heaven. How could he ever distinguish your voice from the voice of everyone else on this earth? Do you think he listens to your prayers? You should know that God doesn't listen to everyone's prayers. That's what the Bible says. You see this from the psalmist. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended the voice of my prayer. What's the distinction there in the mind of the psalmist? Well, when he cherished iniquity, the Lord didn't listen to him. But when he walked in righteousness, the Lord listened to his prayer. Do you want to be heard by God? You don't have to perform in order for God to listen to you, and you don't have to throw a temper tantrum like a toddler. You simply need to do what the people in today's text did. You need to walk in fear and esteem of his name. Now, what's really incredible about this text is not just that God hears the people's voices individually, but remember, this is a corporate text. It says these people who came together and spoke with one another, that's the voice that the Lord heard. Isn't it incredible that the Lord listens to us as a church? Isn't it amazing? I mean, in the eyes of the world, not a lot going on here. Less than 100 people in the room. We're not being broadcast on TBN or some other heretical TV channel. We're not big enough for people to be, you know, watching us on YouTube. But the Lord listens. He hears us. When we come together as a people who fear His name, who walk in humble repentance before Him, the Lord listens as our brother Britton comes up and leads us in prayer. The Lord listens as we sing out, it is well with our soul together. No choir, but He hears us. The Lord listens as Isley reads Scripture. The Lord listens as weak as I am, as I stand here and as I preach His Word. He listens to us. It's amazing. Number three, the Lord remembers His people. In verse 16, we, say that, we see that in light of their words, that the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. A book of remembrance. Or maybe your translation says the scroll of remembrance. I don't know what that is. Could be the book of life that you see talked about in other places of Scripture, but I, I don't think it is. It could be uh, the book that was written of all the descendants of Israel that you see with Nehemiah. Not really sure that that's the case. It seems like this is a book that exists in the mind of God because it's penned by the finger of God. So it seems unlikely that it was written by a human author. Well, whatever it is, friends, we just know that it's good to have our names on it, right? 
It's good to know that in light of the last day, if our names are on this scroll or in this book, it's a good thing. When the Lord comes to separate the sheep from the goats, we'll be counted amongst the sheep. We'll be remembered by God. You know, the world is full of people who have been and will be forgotten. And I don't think that there's anybody in this room that's really an exception to that. Maybe. Odds are against it. But does that really matter if the God of the universe remembers us? Does it matter if we don't end up in a history book? Does it matter if there's not somebody posting on Twitter a hundred years from now, this is the day that such and such did such and such thing? No, it doesn't matter at all. What matters is that we exist in the mind of God and His heart and His memory. Think about the kind of people that you tend to remember most. There's usually two kinds of people that we really remember well those who have hurt us very deeply and those who have loved us very well. Right? That teacher who was really patient with you and didn't give you the F that you definitely deserved. That friend who said the hard thing in a kind way at the right time and really cared for you. That second way, I think that is how the Lord remembers us as people. He doesn't remember us like a man with a vendetta. He doesn't remember us like a man who remembers one of his enemies and vows to eliminate us as soon as he sees us again. No, I think what we see here in the text is that in verse 17, the Lord remembers us like a faithful child. Like a father remembers his son after he's gone off to war and comes back home after serving with valor. Which leads us to point number four. The Lord treasures His people. Verse 17 says that we will be a treasure to Him. Look there again. It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You see this reality most vividly put on display after Jesus comes. Paul says that Jesus views us, His people, the righteous remnant, those who fear His name, those who esteem Him. He views us like a husband in love views his young wife. Listen to the language of these verses. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ladies, think about wedding day. Think about the day that you dreamt of as a little, you know, when you were just imagining the perfect fairy tale wedding. And you, of course, you're the star of the show, obviously. It wouldn't be somebody else. It's you. Maybe in home ec, you even planned this wedding out. Well, how did you envision yourself on that day? Looking haggard? Tired? Bags under your eyes? Kind of like not really into it. A husband who when he walked down the aisle was too busy checking his phone to really look at you. No. You viewed yourself as the most radiant, beautiful, glorious bride in the world who was so amazing and so perfect that when the husband saw you from a thousand yards away, he locked in and he couldn't help but stare at you because you were so beautiful. You were his treasured possession. I've seen that look in the eyes of people who get married. It fades a little with time, but it's still there. 
this is how Jesus loves us, his people. I think the deepest desire of our souls is for somebody to love us like that. Right? We, we just want to be treasured. We want to be cared for. We want to be loved like this. And we live in a world where we're made to feel like we have to earn love, like we have to buy love, whether it's our, you know, high-performing parents who yell at us if we don't do good enough in a sporting event, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend who holds us up to an impossible standard if we ever want to get married, or a pastor who looks down our nose if we don't do things exactly as he thinks they ought to be done, or a boss who won't give us a promotion unless we hit on all notes perfectly. We are performance-oriented. We think that we can and should try to earn God's love because we do try to earn everybody else's love in this world because they tell us we have to. But you don't have to live like that if you belong to the Lord. If you treasure Jesus, He will treasure you. You don't have to pray X number of times a day facing Mecca. You don't have to go through ritual cleansings You don't have to give away a certain amount of money or eat a certain kind of food. You don't have to store up a certain amount of good deeds. You simply need to love Him. Number five. And really, number five and number six kind of go together. Number five is the Lord counts them as righteous. And number six is the Lord spares them. I'm just going to do them together. You see in verse 18 that the Lord will judge between the righteous and the wicked. Look there again. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. How can it be that the people who have already sinned will be called righteous by God? How is that possible? If you've already sinned, you are not righteous. Well, I think this is where the biblical phrase counted as righteous comes into play. Uh, If you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church, you may not know what this phrase means. If you haven't been discipled well or if you haven't been discipled long, you may not know what this phrase means. Let me explain it to you quite simply. Uh, You are not righteous. Righteous means that you have a right standing with God. God looks down on you and he says you're innocent. Everything's okay. It's good. You're not righteous. I am not righteous. So how is it possible that on this day, when God comes and brings His judgment, He will separate us and put us in with the righteous? Well, He will count us as righteous. What this means is that there is a righteousness that isn't our own, but it is credited to our account as if it was our own. You see this in Abraham's life in uh, Genesis chapter 15. It says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. If there was ever anybody who wasn't righteous, it was Abraham. He basically threw his wife under the bus twice out of fear. And this guy was messed up, but the Lord counted righteousness to him. Now, the real question is, well, okay, if that's true, where does this righteousness come from? If he has somebody else's righteousness given to him because of faith, where does that righteousness come from? When I doubt Abraham knew, I don't think he fully understood. 
How could he have known that his seed would one day come in the name Jesus, Yahweh saves, and that he would bring righteousness to the earth? I mean, Paul says specifically in Romans chapter 4, it says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul talks about this alien righteousness when he considers the day of judgment. He says it like this. He says, I hope to be found in him. That's found in Jesus Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul existed on the other side of the cross. He had a little bit more information than Abraham did. And so he knew that Christ came to the earth and he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law perfectly. He listened to his father absolutely. He cherished the Lord. He would never act like the people are acting in today's text. Even as he suffered, he didn't dare to bring a charge against God. He didn't dare to doubt his justice or his righteousness or his goodness. He just fully, completely submitted to the will of the Father in all things, even His death on a cross. And because He lived a righteous life, His righteousness is made available to us. And if we do what the people, the remnant did in today's text, if we fear the Lord, and if we turn away from sin, if we turn away from the treasure of this world, the fool's gold that it is, and if we esteem the name of the Lord, well, His righteousness can become our righteousness. And then one day Jesus will come. And He will say, I'm gathering all the righteous to Myself. And your impulse will be to say, not Me, Lord, I'm not righteous. And yet you will still come to go be with Him forever. Because it's not your righteousness that God is looking for. It's the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's great for a future promise. But what are we to do now, here, while we wait? How do we know who's righteous and who's not? I mean, we know nobody is righteous. But how do we know who will be counted as righteous? How do we know who will have that righteousness given to them on the last day? Well, I think the answer is actually really simple, and it comes straight out of today's text. The righteous are those who respond to the word of the Lord. How do we know, Sean, who's elect and who's reprobate? Well, you don't know, friends. And you shouldn't even try to figure it out. But you can have a pretty good idea just by looking at how people respond to God. When the word of the Lord comes to a person, do they reject it or do they receive it? Do they hate it or do they love it? Do they embrace it or do they run from it? That probably is a good indicator of where a person stands with God. This is what we do in church membership. In church membership, we tell that person, we tell each other, and we tell the world, we think that this person, we're not 100% certain, but we believe, based off of what we can see in this person's life and doctrine, that they've responded to the word of the Lord in repentance and faith, and now they're walking in obedience. And in church discipline, which will certainly take place in the life of this church in the future, when we carry out church discipline, we're coming together as a body, and we're telling that person, brother, sister, I love you. You claim to belong to the Lord, 
but you're, you're not heeding his word. As we're giving you his word and telling you about your sin, you're turning away from it. You're not listening to it. You're rejecting it. As you listen to God's word preached, you seem to want to run away from it rather than soak underneath it. You don't show up on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. We're concerned because we think that God's word is being preached and taught faithfully and you don't want to seem to have anything to do with it. And so we're concerned for your soul. And there is good reason to be concerned. Next week, we're going to look at the judgment of God. We may have to start off with a couple of really happy songs because the sermon is going to be pretty heavy. We're going to be thinking about death and hell and judgment. So brace yourselves. In closing, I want us to leave on a note of encouragement, though. As I was finishing this sermon this week and thinking about my own sin, even this morning, and how uh, it's so easy for us to turn away from the word of the Lord and to not listen, to not respond appropriately. I felt a deep sense of encouragement for this church. I felt a deep sense of thankfulness. On the whole, I see a group of people who are responding favorably to the word of the Lord. As God's word is opened on Wednesday nights, as God's word is opened on Sunday, as God's word is opened in our homes, as we bring up God's word in our counsel to one another as we live our lives and we try to help each other navigate life in this fallen world, I think we're responding as we ought to, as God's people would be expected to. We're not perfect, but I think we're trending in the right direction. So I wanted to share that with you as your pastor so that you would be encouraged as well. So now let's kind of keep that as we move forward and sing. Let me pray first. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would help us to love it, to cherish it, but also to be obedient to it. And Father, we pray that as we go back out into the world, that we would have your word on our lips. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.